and welcome to the Telling the Story podcast, a look at how journalists and everyone reach the world. I'm Matt Pearl, the author of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com, and this is the podcast where we will talk with an esteemed storyteller, maybe on the local level, maybe on the national level, maybe print, maybe radio, maybe video, and we'll talk about the craft of storytelling, as well as the changing face of storytelling and journalism with the folks that know it the best. Now, this is the first episode of the Telling the Story podcast, and I wanted to take a brief moment before introducing our guest today to introduce myself a little bit. And again, my name is Matt Pearl. I'm a reporter with WXIA-TV. That's the NBC affiliate in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a big believer in the craft of storytelling, and I've heard people say before, and I agree with it, that if you can tell a good story, you can work forever in journalism. I also believe that storytelling as we know it is constantly changing. This creates questions and challenges for journalists, and it also creates opportunities. And that's what the Telling the Story blog and Telling the Story podcast are all about. It's a discussion and a conversation that will always be a part of journalism and beyond journalism as well. Now that I've said all that, let me introduce my first guest. He is a friend, a colleague, and a journalist I've admired for a long time, John Shirick of WXIA-TV in Atlanta. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to be with you, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> and I want to be clear that this podcast is not just going to be me and my colleagues at 11 Alive. I do not plan on interviewing everyone else from my station, at least anyone else for a long while, but I'm a big John Shirick fan. As you know, you are one of the best television writers I've ever seen. You've won countless awards, president of the Atlanta Press Club, and you are, I would say, the most respected storyteller in a building that houses quite a few really good ones. So I wanted you to be my first guest because, simply put, your thoughts, your perspectives, they matter and they deserve an audience. So welcome, and, and I, I'm sure I'm making you blush right now, but I appreciate it. Yes, you are. I'm shaking my head, but thank you. It's a great honor, even a bigger honor that, that, uh, that you're not going to be talking with everybody, as you probably should. So thank you. We, are, uh, we do work at a very, very talented station. And, I, you know, I also wanted to talk to you first because you've had a front-row seat to a lot of the changes in local news. Specifically, you went from five years ago being a kind of a traditional TV reporter, someone who worked with a photographer, had compartmentalized responsibilities to a certain extent, to now someone who is a one-man band, a backpack journalist. You shoot and edit your own stories. And, you know, I wanted to talk to you first about that because obviously someone with your pedigree and your background, to make that kind of a change, what do you remember about that? Well, in a way... It's sort of back to the future, <clears throat> excuse me, because when I started a long time ago, I shot my own stories on film. All the reporters in the newsroom had little Bell and Howell cameras and 100-foot uh, rolls of film, and you could get a little bit over three minutes of film on one 100-foot roll of film, and we were all tasked to go out and shoot our own stories with the film camera. If we needed an interview, then we had to get a real photographer who had a big sound camera to tape the inter to to film the interview on 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 the sound camera, then as we moved into tape, um, the jobs were a little bit more um, differentiated, and I wasn't shooting anymore. I was just a reporter. So then, about five years ago, uh, the opportunity came to start shooting my own stories again, and I was I was intrigued. I was interested. I, I wanted to know how to do it with the equipment we now have, because I I thought it would be sort of a uh, give me a sense of empowerment to be able to know how to do it. So that's what interested me at first. Well, I think most people would assume you were probably dragged kicking and screaming into it, knowing the extra responsibilities. Well, the news director asked me a few times, and I always said, no, 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 because our company was trying to get more and more reporters shooting their own stories and more and more photographers going out themselves to shoot their own stories. And, and 
We're all becoming hybrids, for better or worse. And finally, he said, look, I'd, I'd like you to consider this. And if you don't do it, that's fine. You can say no, but I'm going to go and tell somebody else they have to do it. So then I was thinking, <laughs> I don't want to be responsible for somebody else doing this who doesn't, doesn't really want to do it. So I said, let's give it a try. And um, I'm glad I did. It doesn't sound like you were totally sold on the idea at the time. Is that, is that fair? Matt, I'm still not entirely <laughs> sold on it. I love it for certain kinds of stories. and other kinds of stories, you need a, a, a partnership between reporter and photographer. Last night, I went out on a story, for example, where I really needed to be with a photographer. It was the kind of story where you're out the door immediately. You've got to be on the phone making calls, setting up interviews, trying to get information. And when you're driving in rush hour traffic, you can't do that. So I, I, felt, I felt constrained with that type of story. Somehow I was able to get it all together, and I think the story came out fine, probably as, as well as I could have hoped if I'd worked with a photographer. But, but I've got to think that, that you miss something in the collaboration, you miss something in the partnership. So that's an aspect of it that, that I miss. But... Sometimes you get out on a story where it's just fun to be by yourself. It's a little less intimidating for the people you're, you're interviewing and you're, and you're covering when it's just you and a small camera. And they, they tend to relax a little bit more and open up to just one person instead of seeing a battery of lights and a big camera and a tripod and, and a real serious attempt to do serious news. You can do something a little bit more informally that way where I think it's, it's a big advantage. And then having that control, if that's the right word, where you're constantly writing the story in your head as you're reporting it, as you're shooting it, and, and it's the perfect marriage between reporter and photographer, I suppose, uh, from that aspect, because you know what you need, you know what you want, and, and to the best of your ability, you're able to deliver. I think that's always one of the big surprises for me when I go to, when I'm calling to set up a story, and someone says something to the effect of, well, you know, how many of you guys are going to be in here if it's a small house or a small apartment? And I think a lot of times people are pleasantly surprised when it is just you and a small camera, too. And a lot of times people will say, oh, some other station was just here and they had a photographer and a reporter and <laughs> and an engineer from the satellite truck and you're by yourself. And 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 I tell them... Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's fine. I'm fine with it because I tell the other guys it takes two or three of them to do what I do. <laughs> Have you, when you look at the work you've done in the last five years as opposed to the work you did before that, how has that extra control, how has shooting your own stuff changed your work? And do you feel it's made it better? Oh, gosh. I think um, sometimes if it's 10 minutes to 11 and the story is the lead story and I'm still editing and I haven't sent the story to the computer, I'm thinking that this is God's judgment on me for all the times <laughs> that I gave a photographer and editor a late script and they were right. the ones at 10 minutes to 11 trying to get the story on the air. I, I think it has made me a better reporter in a lot of ways. It has helped me economize my, my uh, uh, approach to stories so that um, I have a better idea while I'm talking to somebody the direction the story probably needs to go as I'm talking to them, because that sort of defines the story as you're reporting it. And, and it streamlines, streamlines a lot of, um, of what I do. So I think that's one advantage. Um, I, I think that I'm still a work in progress. I, I can't pretend to be a photographer after five years. Uh, when I look at some of the best photographers in the world that I've worked with, 
who have been in this business for 20 and 30 and 40 years. And if I had a lifetime, I could never do what they do in shooting and editing and, and producing a piece. But I can bring myself to it. And in this day of iPhone news videos, uh, sometimes I can, I, I'm a few cuts beyond that. I think I've improved beyond maybe what I would have been five years ago. So I'm a work in progress, but, but um, I, I think it's getting better. You know, I always marvel at the change that you made in, in picking those skills up because I know as someone who, you know, from college, I've pretty much been told, okay, this is what the game is. This is what you have to do. And if you want to work in this business, certainly as a young reporter, you pretty much have to shoot your own stuff. There's no way around that. And to see someone who's done it without shooting their own stuff for 15, 20 years and, and to take it on and to, you know, catch up to the level that, all the young kids who have, you know, who have done it since college. The, the technology is, is easier and easier, even now compared with five years ago, to where, yes, any seven or eight-year-old could probably do, <laughs> do the... Uh, that's not what I meant by young kids, but... Right, but they, technically they know how to put a story together if that's what they wanted to do. They could find the software, they would have the camera, and they could do a beautiful job. My gosh, we saw this kid on YouTube doing his internet um, bar mitzvah invitation. It was phenomenal. What a great production. It was a lot of fun. And so, yes, kids are picking up on the technology. I think, I think uh, what I'm trying to do is get it to where it's second nature to me, to where it is a tool that's useful and not something I still have to learn. You have worked at the same station for more than three decades now. Um, you've obviously been in this business for even longer. As you look back from the 1980s to now, has local news changed for the better? Well, I would say yes. No question about it. We are better at um, doing what we do in the sense of thanks to the internet, thanks to the, the, the changing digital nature of information, we have a much um, easier way of, of getting the good st solid background and the stories we have to cover so that we can then jump off from there and, uh, and do our original reporting. You've got to be careful with what you see on the internet. You can't believe it all, um, yeah. but it, it is a good reference point. Whereas I think, gosh, years ago, I think of the hours I spent in the public library and, and uh, just researching, getting background information on an issue or on a topic um, to where now it, in a few clicks in an hour, you can get that kind of backgrounding find out what others have reported on it, uh, get a good idea of the context of a story so that you can move in with some authority and some, um, I guess, information that, that will help you uh, ask the right questions and, and, and get to the story you're trying to cover. I remember when I was growing up, in, 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 I was a news junkie, and I remember a quote that a guy named Reuven Frank from NBC News used to um, say about his correspondence. He would say that, that my correspondents are outsiders on behalf of other outsiders. And I like that because we can't know as much as the people we're covering about the story that's important to them. We don't have that context, but we can bring our own eyes and our own mind and our own heart to their world to, to, to bring a fresh perspective and a fresh look at it then I, th I think it's an advantage sometimes that we can be those outsiders telling a story that's important to other people 
who are on the outside looking in. I've noticed, and I always say now, that I think part of what makes journalism more exciting now and storytelling more exciting than now is that it really has become almost for the people. I think of stories that I've done where it's almost you feel like an aggregator of everyone else's output, where it's a big story and, and you're, you know, you're talking about someone's Twitter photo or, or a viewer video that they took and you're crafting that into a story. And to me, as much as, you know, I'd love to be the only person with a camera and the only person who has you know, the voice and the declarative voice on a story, I kind of enjoy that, that it really almost seems communal in a way that I don't know if it felt like that, certainly when I was watching the news growing up. And maybe years ago, somebody would have called you with a tip. Somebody would have called you with, oh, you won't believe what I just saw at this gas station or at the post office or downtown. But now they can send you a photo. They can send you a, a, a clip of video. They can post it themselves. And uh, it is just one added tool to what we do. It's very valuable. Do you feel like storytelling and uh, that aspect of journalism has improved? The actual writing and the actual crafting of a story? Good storytelling will always be good storytelling. It will never change. You look back at Charles Kuralt's work, for example. He's an example that a lot of us look to, um, that we all try to um, think of there's a, one of the best storytellers in this medium. So good storytelling will always be good storytelling, and we can only try to follow those kinds of examples with what we do. Well, it's so funny because you mentioned Charlie Corral, and I was just thinking about this because for the, for the first two months of this year, as I think you know, I was on the road teaching our newspaper brothers in the Gannett family how to do web video. And one of the videos that we showed them when we talked about writing for the ear and specifically voicing and speaking was the intro to a Charlie Corral piece. And he's standing on a long road and he, and he starts going, this is a long road. And he, and he, and he does this whole 30-second intro and he walks down this dusty road and he, and he ends it by leaning on a mailbox. And the lesson from that was about using the voice and you know, showing, that the, showing the power that one voice can have. But I always had to preface it by saying, we don't want you to go out and lean on a mailbox and, you know, look staged and walk down a road. So I feel like even with that, good storytelling is good storytelling. But at the same time, there are definitely aspects of that, you know, all-powerful storyteller that I don't think people buy as much anymore. I don't think the, for lack of a better phrase, we'll call it the Ron Burgundy style of storytelling necessarily applies. I think you almost have to prove your authority to a certain extent now. I think uh, you can't copy somebody else. You have to be a reporter of your times. You have to report um, the best you can the way you can do it, the best you can do it. And so, yes, you look to a Charles Kuralt or a Bob Dotson or uh, uh, some of the others who do this so well, but, but you can't try to copy them. You can only admire them and appreciate them and then try to be the best you can be at what you can do. And, and so you wouldn't do a story now in the style of a Charles Kuralt then. But there are um, his writing and the way he, he would meld word and picture and sound is, is phenomenal, and it, and it stands the test of time. Now, I know uh, in trying to sell the idea of doing this podcast to you, you were very loath to want to talk about your craft and, uh, and how you do what you do. But it is something I'd like to talk a little bit about because I think when I 
look at your work, I always think of the writing because I always feel like, you know, anyone can take the nuts and bolts of a story and tell it and be fine. And you would have done your job as a journalist. But then I think of some of the sentences that I've heard from you and how hearing a sentence like that absolutely brings home the story in a way that the nuts and bolts don't. I wanted to talk about a specific one. Uh, you did a, we call it a, a reporter's notebook or a, kind of a storyteller's notebook after you got back from Aurora, Colorado. You covered the uh, movie theater shooting last year. And you had one line where you were talking about the parents waiting for their kids to come out of the theater and you said they didn't, I'm going to quote this, you said they didn't just hug their kids, they inhaled them. And I just remember hearing that line and feeling like I, w I could absolutely imagine that in a way that I couldn't before. How, how did those happen for you? First of all, I wasn't loath to talk with you. It's just that <laughs> I, I never talk about this. It, I, I don't go out and lecture to students. I don't know how to talk about what I do. And I think that's probably the case with a lot of reporters. You just go out and do it the best you can. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to be able to try to talk a little bit about what I do or how I do it. I, I remember when, when I was there helping out our sister station in Denver, there was this huge public memorial for the people who were shot and wounded in the theater shooting in Aurora next to Denver. And I was helping them with the coverage and I was walking around with my camera getting scenes of faces and, and people and people embracing each other and, and um, a young woman who looked kind of like a goth-dressed uh, woman carrying a bouquet of flowers because she was of that age where, where she would have been at that movie premiere with a lot of her contemporaries and, and she felt a connection there. It, just a million different stories of people whose hearts went out to the people in those theaters, in, in that theater. Uh, because they felt that it could have been them, it could have been their children, it could have been their grandchildren. And when I saw this woman embracing her child and the, and the child was kind of nuzzling up to her neck, and the same thing with a man who was holding his child the same way, that's just what I thought when I was taking the picture, and, and I remembered it. So it, it wasn't any turn of phrase that I was trying to be clever with. It's just it's what comes to you while you're shooting it. And that's one of the advantages of being a one-man band because you're seeing what you will end up working with in the editing room immediately where you don't have to go back and, and screen everything that some other photographer has shot who would probably shoot it a hundred times better than you could anyway, but at least you know what you've got to work with and, and lines come to you while you're shooting it. it it's, it's the way the event kind of speaks to your mind and heart. Well, and that's really an interesting point because I think that's a, you're right, that is a great benefit of shooting your own stuff. Not that reporters who don't can't have those same thoughts and notice those things, but I think when you, when you are your own photographer, you're forced to look for details or, and, and notice you know, these kind of working things. with a photographer, you have to say to him, <laughs> if he hasn't <laughs> noticed it, quick, get that shot. Right. And you don't want to tell him to do that because you want to leave them on their own. They're professionals. They know what they're doing. And and, and they do it beautifully, and, and, and so, on the other hand, if you have a good working relationship with a ph photographer, you can say that to, to him or her, say, get that shot, and they can tell you, look at the shot I'm getting, you need to write to this. So, um, but, but shooting it yourself, for better or worse, removes that one step. You know, you talked about all those moments that you saw in Aurora, and I think with any story that has particularly emotional moments, 
it's very easy for people to talk over those moments and not add to the story, not add to the emotions by doing that. But I think it takes that special line. And is there a certain sense of you have to know when you have that and, and maybe at other times you back off even saying anything? How do you... Yeah, you, you think about that all the time. And this is one of those examples where I don't know what to tell you as far as, as how you do it. You just um, you, you do the best you can to get as much background as you can on a story, on an issue. Fill your head with facts, with information. Arm yourself with that muscle of, of pure knowledge as much as you can about a story. Then you can start to get to know the people involved. You can start to try to understand the people involved, what they're going through, how they're seeing it, what they want um, to understand about it. And, and you can leap past the pure recitation of facts, which is important. That has to be part of your reporting, but, but it has to be somehow um, wedded to deeper truths that, that really are part of the story as well. And I, I'm thinking of a mundane example. Let's say a group of citizens has a gripe against the governor. So they, they, they come to the state capitol with an armload of, of signatures, uh, uh, hundreds of petitions that they've distributed, and they're bringing it to the governor to lay on his desk and say, do something about this. So you can imagine, you've seen stories like this. where it Happens every day where the reporter says, and the crowd came into the Capitol and walked down the hallways, uh, their, their footsteps echoing uh, uh, in, the, in the marble hallways, security guards keeping a close eye on them as they went through the governor's door. A receptionist looked up warily at them, and they placed the petitions on the desk and demanded to see the governor, and the receptionist said he's not in, but an aide comes out and says, I'll make sure the governor uh, sees this and responds, and, and that's the reporter's script, Repi- reporting exactly almost a description shot by shot of here's what you're seeing now, here's what you're seeing now, here's what you're seeing now, which of course is, is part of a story at times where you, 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 the, the words and the pictures combine in a powerful way that way. However, think of if you see those same pictures in that same sequence of shots, the pictures can tell their own simultaneous parallel story wordlessly while you are saying something like, they drew up this petition with seven demands, and their demands are this, 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 and this, and then you cut to a soundbite with somebody commenting on that, maybe in an out of uh, a different location, so it, it, it cuts well with the video. And, and so you're talking about the issue, and you're getting deeper into the story without conflicting with the pictures you've seen, still complementing the pictures you've seen, but but you can tell almost two or three stories at once, and that's part of the beauty of the medium. The nonverbal communication can be as important as what you actually say. Before we kind of wrap up the podcast, I wanted to talk to you specifically about creating work that endures and stands the test of time. You wrote a farewell piece to one of our colleagues, Mark Picard, who uh, another great, great writer and storyteller and sad that he's not sitting across from me anymore because but you can talk to him you can reach him and i think he'd be a good person to interview on this on this series he you know when i first got to channel 11 and i saw some of his work it was so it it was so um you know the competitive juices get flowing when you know that he's such a good writer and and you're trying to write right across from you oh my goodness i would because you know i would look up from my computer writing on a script and i would see his 
gray haired, you know, the top of his head. And I'd be like, okay, that's the guy. That's the, you know, that's the one who's, who's better than anyone. You know what? You can look at video uh, from 40 years ago in the 1970s when he was starting out as a reporter and his, his reports were, were spectacular, sparkling. And, and not because he was the star of the story, but because he let the story come out and he got out of the way of the story and he knew how to tell a story so that the story was the star. So you wrote this paragraph in your tribute to Mark. You wrote, where are his thousands of news stories now? Aside from the relative few that are preserved here or there, it's left to science fiction writers to speculate about all those TV news stories riding forever at the speed of light on TV signals that drift into other galaxies, maybe for our neighbors to reassemble and see someday as they study what kind of planet is this Earth. And from a man named Mark Picard, they'll see the work of a barnstorming Shakespeare skywriting sonnets in the wind that were already wisps of memories by the time he began his next assignment. Day after week, after month, after year, and always, always having a grand time. Now, first of all, again, wow, that, that, that piece of writing in itself. Well, that's Mark Picard. And Mark wrote that. No, no, no that, okay. that, that is, <laughs> I'm trying to define Mark Picard, and... And that's who I think we all want to be, how we all want to do what we do. But I wanted to ask you, you know, it it strikes me in reading that, and I think it's obvious that you think, as we all do, about if not your legacy, then the lasting potential of your work. And, you know, I always get frustrated with the idea that I will do thousands of stories, hopefully, in my career, and for the most part, they will just drift into the ether and, you know, and you wonder what, how do you, how does your work resonate over time? What do you do that leads, leaves a lasting impression? Well, that gets into an even greater topic about what's the most enduring um, art, if you will. If, if you look at sculptures, they survive over the centuries, over the, over the millennia. Sculptures survive. But um, think of a pop song from 100 years ago that, that was a big hit then, and now it's just so totally quaint and, and uh, different sounding that you can't imagine it being number one. So from those two extremes about uh, in pop culture, what is um, art and, and what is lasting art, I don't know. I know that I can look at work that Celestine Sibley of the Atlanta Journal, or the Atlanta Constitution back then, did in the 1940s covering Fulton County murder trials to where nobody remembers the murder trial but you read her work it is is beautiful it is it stands the test of time it tells you more about her times and about people and about lasting values that we all um, understand and 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 want to understand than a straight news account of so and so testified then so and so testified so that's an example of you try to tell the larger truths while you're trying to report the story and, and, and keep, it, keep the big picture in mind. So I don't know what lasts or what won't last. I think in the digital age, they, they say everything lasts on the Internet forever now. So maybe more and more of the good work that people do will be in forms like, like, uh, that can be accessed by the Internet. So maybe it will have a life that goes two or three generations beyond, and people can see a little bit clearer of what it was like to live in our times. That's really interesting. And I, you know, I was talking with someone about awards the other day, and I think part of the reason that uh, 
journalists gravitate towards awards is because, you know, you can say you did thousands of stories or anyone who worked in the business for 25, 30 years. But when you say you've won, you know, so-and-so number of whatevers, Murrow Awards, Emmy Awards, that's something that you can actually point to as like, this was a special story in that it won an award. And I don't really buy that line of thinking because I, you know, the stories that I love the most are not usually the ones that win awards. And if they are, it's, it's a happenstance. It's not, you know, it's not because I was shooting for them. It's because that that story for some reason resonated. But I feel like one of the frustrating things about our job is that you put your heart and soul into stories and you work so hard. And, you know, at some point you, you know, you wonder whatever happens I, th- I look at some of the stories, you know, I did a story on a, a bone marrow uh, transplant where a young woman from Atlanta donated bone marrow to a 50-something, 60-something-year-old yeah. man in California. Mm-hmm. And I loved the story, but what I really loved was that our station organized a bone marrow registry drive and got almost 200 people on the registry, which isn't even a huge dent in that registry, but it, it felt like the story made a difference beyond just being a great piece of journalism and storytelling. Well, that's, that's a very good point, because we can talk all, all day about how to write a story, whether a story was well-written, well-shot, well-edited, well-presented, and, and uh, we're always trying to do that better. But a week or two ago, I did a story that um, was very important to a group of people in, uh, that um, was involved with this issue. And in their little universe, the story went viral. And I was able to see some of the comments that people wrote on, on a blog or a, or a Facebook page or, you know, different places where the story popped up. And 99% of them were talking about the issue involved in the story. They were talking about the people involved. They weren't talking about how well written it was or wasn't or how well shot it wasn't or wasn't. That's what I was talking about, about the story coming out and becoming what is remembered and what people react to and um, and not the reporter to where if you know that that you've done such a good job that they don't notice you, they notice the story, then you can feel like you've succeeded doing a good job and a responsible job for the viewers and the, and the web readers. Um, and, and so I think that when people can act and react and, and make a difference in other people's lives because of some work that you've done, then that's, that's good. That's, that's kind of what you hope for. You hope that you're doing good. Even if it's not necessarily the journalist who, you know, gets credited with that, even if it's just the difference that's made. You know the work that you've done, and if it's good work, you know it. And if you've got to improve, you know that too, uh, in, in a good, honest self-assessment. Um, and, and so, no, you don't do it for the credit. You, you do it for the joy of of the work. Terrific. Well, John, it's been a, a real pleasure chatting with you. And, and like all good journalists, I want to ask the question that I think always needs to get asked at the end of any interview, podcast, anything. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that, that you feel is significant? You know, I ask that question after every <laughs> interview. And invariably, it's, no, I think we covered it. You did a great job. And then, and then I always say, but in five minutes, I'll think of a million other things I wish I'd said as well or better. My favorite answer is when they say, no, I think that's it. But, you know, I really just want to say, and then they go. And, they, and you have the, the, the quote of the night, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be with you. 
And uh, that will do it for the inaugural episode of the Telling the Story podcast. Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Thank you for listening. Thanks to John Shearick, and we will see you next time.